Welcome everyone to another episode of my weird little podcast. Yay. So today is the episode about um, mysteries involving gangs, I guess. Gangs? The one with... I'll put a question mark on it. The one with... Yeah. <laughs> the one involving gangs? Gangs? Could be. But not like modern day gangs. These are like, you know, Tommy Gunn, you know. Excuse you. (laughs) (laughs) I get get excited every time someone talks about a Tommy Gunn. It just happens. This is like (laughs) old gangsters, like suit wearing mobster. I guess mobsters, that's the name. (laughs) That's the name. Okay. The one with mob mysteries. Uh, there we go, right? Your guy's mysteries. a mob guy, right? Kind of? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, I'm okay. Totally yeah, cool, cool, cool. Me too. To his Me too. Shaking hands. Shaking hands with the mobs. Yeah. With so, the mob people. With the, right now it sounds like he was like doing something else. <laughs> <laughs> um so I I think I go first, right? Oh, yeah, because we always Go chronological. Chronological order. When, except for tomorrow when I record with Teresa, I think I want to go first before her, even though I don't know if mine's going to be chronological. Not that it matters. I, anyway, I, I no one cares. Say, I don't know. It matter. Sorry, but... listeners, you don't you don't care. Let me uh, close this door real quick. Okay. Sounds a little echoey, but I can probably fix it. All right, so. So we good to go? Should I go? Yeah, yeah. All right. So my story today is about Alfonso. Alphonse. Oh, sorry. That's, I've already <laughs> fucked it up. Two <laughs> seconds in. What am I going? Um, Alphonse Gabriel Capone and the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. 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 Yeah. Um, so fun fact before we get into this. Pat and I were part of a St. Valentine's Day Massacre reenactment a few years ago. It's true. Um, so this was put on by what was this what was the group called? The, the Historical, Historical Society. Some of the Historical Society. Yeah. It was at in the LA. Women, it was at like the Women's Club The Women's Center. The Women's Center, Center. The Women's Center of Hollywood is where it the setting, the Women's Center of Hollywood. Hollywood a few years ago, uh, um, our friend Jackson, who interior. is uh, right. who is a wonderful uh, historical reenactor, he's a wonderful actor in general. He put on a reenactment of the um, Speakeasy Society. Is that what they are? No, I'm not sure. Maybe I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Anyways, he put on a reenactment of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and the premise was that it was going to be, it's on Valentine's day night. It was this dance, um, this dance, everyone's going to dress up all 1920s, you know, and they had dancers, they had a band, they had booze. And at the end of the night, there was going to be a reenactment of the St. Valentine's day massacre followed by a pie fight. So, Everything just, just like what happened. Just like exa- yeah, that's exactly that's exactly historically <laughs> accurate, followed by a pie fight, and everyone throws pies. So nice going great, you know. I 
technically I was not involved in the reenactment. Uh, um, I was sorry. an attendee uh, slash pie tosser, I guess. That, that sounds right, right, dirty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That sounds wrong. It's after we were done shaking hands with the mom. With the mom. Um, <laughs> so we, night's great, having a good time. And then Jackson's like, let's go out and, you know, set up for the the massacre and so like i'm i'm with the rest of the audience members so i'm like putting on a poncho getting like two whipped cream pies in my hands like ready for this and everything and we see you all like these actors dressed up like these 1920s gang members with these like guns you know and i'm like i didn't even think like where this could go wrong <laughs> you know no one died let me just preface that. No one died, or but was injured or anything. we're in a parking lot in the middle of Hollywood, like two blocks from Hollywood Boulevard, in the middle of the parking lot of the Women's Center. And you guys like did the St. Valentine's Day reenactment, which you know people get with with like with like blanks with blanks. Like, like and so you're popping like, off these like guns. it sounded like we were shooting people. Yeah, <laughs> popping off these guns. Not but like so then like you you guys shoot each other and you do this like fake death and it's like it's all in good fun and everyone just starts throwing pies at each other and everyone's covered in whipped cream and not but like five minutes after we're done everyone's thrown the pies and everything we start hearing sirens and i remember you giving the gun back to jackson and i remember hearing the sirens and me looking at you and being like oh no we fucked up this is a this is bad like no wonder the cops are gonna show up like yeah. there's gunshots going off in hollywood like someone not like someone listening it would not sound like I mean, oh there's a bunch like of people having fun buildings like right next to it too yeah know? it just sounded like someone shot a bunch of people at a party because right. all they hear is like laughter and yeah we're right next to an apartment building so i all i remember is looking at you and being like we got to go now we're leaving I don't want to be here when no, the cops yeah. show up. We, we, it was and, perfect timing too. And like, I like remember ripping my poncho off and like throwing it into trash real quick and just beelining it towards the street, headed down towards Hollywood Boulevard. I'm like, we need to just walk and be like three blocks away before we even think about where, where did we park our car? <laughs> where right. are we going? Or why uh, did not wipe the prints on the gun? Yeah. And <laughs> I remember seeing the cops, pull up and looking very confused because everyone's laughing and covered in whipped cream and stuff, you know. And that's all I remember. I never asked Jackson what happened after that point. Um, I'm sure it's fine because, like, we did projects with him later and everything. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it's he, fine. But moral of the story is, like, don't fire off fake guns in the middle of Hollywood. <laughs> you know? Like, right? Yeah, without telling somebody. And, it, like after once I saw the cops, I was like, "Oh no, duh! This is a bad idea." <laughs> but right. it hadn't registered that it would be a bad idea. And even they might have told the city ahead of time. They might have told people ahead of time. You know, I'm sure the women's center knew what was going down. You know, but anyways, yeah, that was a fun time. Those were good time. Good yeah, one of my more fond memories of Hollywood. So. Uh -huh. Uh, here we are years later in Las Vegas, and I'm reminded again of that night. Um, we had a reminder for, at our job about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and um, I felt like it would be a fun topic for the podcast. So here we go. So we'll start with 
the man allegedly behind the massacre. All right, Alphonse Gabriel Capone, also known as Scarface, Big Al, Big Boy, Public Enemy, Public Enemy Number One, and Snorky. Nice. Yeah. So uh, they're, they're all like perfectly normal until that. It's Snorky. One, yeah. However, Snorky is <laughs> Snorky is the name he wanted to be called. He wanted people to call him Snorky. That was like uh-huh. the out of all of those, he didn't like those other nicknames, but he liked Snorky because Snorky was slang for a well-dressed man. And he really wanted this image of being a man of the finer things, you know. So, anyways, Al Capone was born in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, on January 17th, 1899 to Italian immigrant parents. He had eight siblings. His parents emigrated to New York in 1893. They stayed on 95 Navy Street. When, uh, when Alphonse was 11, they moved to Park Slope. Vincenzo, his brother, became a prohibition agent and changed his name to Richard Hart probably to uh, not be connected to the Capones because the other members of the families were definitely connected to the mob or other various things. Raphael James uh, was also, his his other brother was known as Bottles. Uh, who, <laughs> yes, I he, dig that one. Yeah, who would go on to control his brother's liquor empire. Salvatore, who was also known as Frank, uh, would also work for Al Capone. His sister Amina died at the age of one. Mm-hmm. Amino, also known as John, uh, Albert, Matthew, and his surviving sister Mathalda Capone. Yeah. So when he started school, he showed promise as a student, but struggled with following the rules of his strict Catholic upbringing. He was expelled. He was expelled from school at 14 for striking a female teacher in the face. Ooh, yeah, not good. Um, don't do that. And uh, he joined several gangs. The These gangs, I love the names of gangs back then. Uh, the Bowery Boys, Junior 40 Thieves. Junior 40 Thieves. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Brooklyn Rippers. All right, all right. And then eventually the Five Points Gang, the most powerful gang at the time, which was based in Lower Manhattan. That sounds like like the, the highest ranking gang. Yeah, Five Points. Five that's Points. Like, that's like five stars, I guess, in the gang. Wait, now say Five Points Gang as a like as a as Al Capone. Do it. Do the Al Capone's <laughs> well, voice. I don't know how you. <laughs> hey, Five Points Gang. Right, oh, right. that was so that bad. Was, that was okay. much better. Yeah, I would have done it. Sorry. Okay. So he joined the Five Points Gang as a teenager and became a bouncer in organized uh, bouncer in organized crime premises premises such as brothels. So in 1917, Al, uh, who then was employed by Frankie Yale, a bootlegger and protection racketeer, who. Uh, Frankie Yale, a little bit on Frankie Yale. He demanded payment from local businesses to protect them, protect them, probably from himself. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he opened a bar in Coney Island called the Harvard Inn. Uh, Al 
Fonz, Al Capone, worked as a bartender while working. Oh, so here's where he, while working one night as a doorman, he got into a fight with a gangster, Frankie Galucho. They're all named Frank, by the way. Mm-hmm. Everybody in this story is named Frank. So <laughs> Frankie Galucho, because he complimented Frankie's sister's backside to which seemed seemed to upset frankie that's hilarious the way that's written it's yeah like, like <laughs> yeah like there's an orchestra playing in the background or something <laughs> yeah and uh frankie galucho slashed capone with a knife across his face leaving him with a noticeable scar on the left side of his face he would later claim it was a war war wound although he never served in the war damn the war of complimenting a backside. Yeah. The war of backsides. The war of um, In his early 20s, he moved to Chicago and became a bodyguard and trusted factotum, which I'm not sure what that is, but that's what he was, unless I misspelled something in my notes, uh, for Johnny Tor- Torrio, head of a criminal syndicate that illegally supplied alcohol, the forerunner of the outfit, and was politically protected through the Union Sicilania. Union. Union? Oh, God. Why am I saying? Okay. Let me start over. Unione. Unione. <laughs> Sicilania. That's probably what it is, honestly. <laughs> I have. Okay. Siciliana. Just leave it. It's fine. Yeah. Whatever. I'm not editing that out. <laughs> A conflict with. Oh, so, okay. A conflict with the North Side Gang was instrumental in Capone's rise and fall. Torrio went into retirement after Northside gunmen almost killed him, uh, handing control to Capone. Capone expanded the bootlegging business through increasingly violent means. But his mutually profitable relationships with Mayor William Hale Thompson and the city's police meant he seemed safe from law enforcement seemed safe you know that's you know and he probably was i mean in all these stories you know police officers they're like so corrupt anyways capone Mm -hmm. apparently reveled in attention thus the name snorky of course uh such as uh so such as the cheers from spectators when he appeared at ball games uh, he made donations to various charities and was viewed by many as a modern-day Robin Hood. However, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, in which seven gang members from Al Capone's rival gang were murdered in broad daylight, damaged the public image of Chicago and Capone, leading influential citizens to demand government action and newspapers to dub Capone public enemy number one. Done, done, done. So, federal authorities became intent on jailing Capone and charged him with 22 counts of tax evasion. So they really wanted to get him, but because much he had covered his tracks quite well or was involved with police in some of his duelings, this is usually how they get bad people from what I've surmised is that Tax evasion is an easy way to do it. Also, because I'm sure a lot of this money was being laundered or not on books or, you know, official government books, at least. 
So he was convicted of five counts in 1931 during a very highly publicized case. The judge admitted uh, as evidence admissions of his incomes and unpaid taxes during made during prior negotiations to pay the government taxes he owed. He was convicted and sentenced to 11 years in federal prison. So uh, he had actually thought he wasn't going to go to jail for that long. He, he was like, hey, if I, you know, um, admit to my wrongdoings, like I'll take a plea. And he, he thought he was going to go to prison for like two to four years. And it did not work out in his favor that way. But he was also facing like 20 to 50 years. So, you know, 11 years. I mean, he's Al Capone, you know. <laughs> um, so after conviction, he replaced his defense team with uh, experts in tax law and his grounds for appeal were strengthened by the Supreme Court reeling, ruling, but his appeal ultimately failed. So when Capone was uh, in Eastern State Penitentiary, they realized that he, one, they found out that he had an IQ of 90. So he's not really that smart of a guy, but like, I don't know, intelligence, like. Measuring, measuring intelligence is, isn't, isn't exactly. Flawed. Yeah. And yeah. also like. Maybe he's not that smart, but he had a he knew how to have people work for him. He had street smarts. He had street smarts, yeah. yes. And he had a lot of people he was good at organizing people. His street you know? IQ would have been like Street Einstein. Street Einstein. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so Capone also showed signs of Nero syphilis uh early in his sentence and became increasingly debilitated before being released almost eight years after incarceration. So he was released because he was like very sick. He had syphilis. He never got it fixed. Uh, he was, uh, he was peeing pus. And, <laughs> and uh, never, although, you know, like they had cures for syphilis at this time. He could have just had a penicillin shot. You know, he, didn't have that happen. And uh, if you don't get it taken care of, it will eat away at your brain and cause you to have um, neuro neurological like disorders. I'm getting, well, yeah, that's right. Neurosyphilis. Neurosyphilis, that's right? That's that what sounds, that is. That sounds about right. Yeah. That's, 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 uh, that's anyways. Crazy. So on January 25th, 1947, he died of cardiac arrest after suffering a stroke. So that's a bit on Mr. Capone, but let's get into the massacre, which happened several years earlier. I mentioned it just slightly in that uh, summary of him, but the massacre. At 10.30 a.m. on St. Valentine's Day, Thursday, February 14th, 1929, to be exact, seven men were murdered in the garage at 2122 North Clark Street in the Lincoln Park neighborhood of Chicago's North Side. They were shot by four men using weapons that included two Thompson submachine guns. Two of the shooters were wearing police uniforms, while the others wore suits, uh, ties, overcoats, and hats. So 
So two of them looked like mobsters and two looked like cops. Huh. Suspicious. <laughs> huh. Is it cops working with police or are they all just, uh, I mean, is it mob cops working? Cops working. <laughs> what am I saying? You get it. Is it, is the it police cops? The police cops. <laughs> is it the police cops or is it the mob cops? Um, witnesses saw the men in police uniforms leading uh, the other men at gunpoint out of the garage after the shooting. So the police actually weren't initially called because they were like, oh, well, this is a police affair. They thought the police were already there. So the victims included five members of George Bugs Moran's North Side Gang, Moran's second in command and brother-in-law, Albert, Albert Chaklilek. Kachelik. Oh, God. I'm the worst. Kachelik. Yeah, that's what it is. What am, what am I even saying? What are, <laughs> anyways, Moran's brother-in-law, who was also known as James Clark, uh, was killed along with Adam Hayer, the gang's bookkeeper and business manager, Albert Weinshank, who managed several cleaning and dyeing operations for Moran, and gang enforcers Frank Gusenberg and Peter Gusenberg. Two collaborators were also shot. Reinhard H. Schwimmer, a former optician, optician turned gambler and gang associate, and John May, an associate mechanic for the Moran gang. Chicago police officers re- arrived at the scene to find the victim, Frank Gutenberg, was still alive. He was taken to the hospitals where doctors stabilized him for a short time, and the police tried to question him. He had to sit... He had sustained 14 bullet wounds and the police asked him who did it. And he replied, no one shot me. No one shot me with 14 bullet wounds in him, but no one shot him. Yeah. He's got some tight lips. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Ain't seen nothing. Uh, He died three hours later. These ain't bullet wounds. I fell on a cactus. (laughs) I just (laughs) fell on some bullets here. Um, so Al Capone was widely assumed to have been responsible for uh, for ordering this massacre, uh, despite being at his Florida home at the time of the massacre, uh, where he died later on. But I'll get into that later as well. Um, the massacre was an attempt to eliminate Bugs Moran, the head of the Northside gang, and the motivation for the plan may have been the fact that some expensive whiskey illegally imported from Canada via the Detroit River had been hijacked while it was being transported to Cook County, Illinois. Moran was the last survivor of the Northside gunman. Um, His succession had come about because his similarly aggressive predecessor, Jaime Weiss and Vincent Drucy, Drucy, Vincent Drucy had been killed. Drucy, Vincent Drucy. Uh, had been killed in the violence that followed the murder of original leader Dean O'Bannon, which I'll get into. His name's going to come up later. Several factors contributed to the timing of the plan to kill Moran. Earlier in the year, Northsider Frank Gusenberg and his brother Peter unsuccessfully attempted to murder Jack McGurn, 
plan was to lure Moran to the SMC Cartage Warehouse in Nor on North Clark Street on February 14th, 1929 to kill him and perhaps two or three of his lieutenants. It was usually assumed that the Northsiders were lured to the garage. Uh, it was so sorry. It was assumed that the Northsiders were lured to the garage with the promise of a stolen cut rate shipment of whiskey supplied by Detroit's Purple Gang, which was associates with Capone. Uh, the Gusenberg brothers were supposed to drive two empty trucks to Detroit that day to pick up two loads of stolen Canadian whiskey. All of the victims were dressed in their best clothes, with the exception of John May, as was customary for the Northsiders and other gangsters at the time. Most of the Moran gang arrived at the warehouse by approximately 10.30 a.m., but Moran was not there. Having left his Parkway Hotel apartment late, he and fellow gang member Ted Newberry approached the rear of the warehouse from a side street when they saw a police car approaching the building. They immediately turned and retraced their steps going to a nearby coffee shop. They encountered gang member Henry Gusenberg on the street and warned him, so he too turned back. Northside gang member Willie Marks also spotted the police car on his way to the garage, and he ducked into a doorway and jotted down the license number before leaving the neighborhood. Capone's lookouts likely mistook one of Moran's men for Moran himself, probably Albert Weinshank, who was the same height and build. The physical similarity between the two men was enhanced by their dress that morning. So both happened to be wearing the same color overcoats and hats. Witnesses outside of the garage saw a Cadillac sedan pull up to the stop in front of the garage. Four men emerged and walked inside, two of them dressed in police uniform. The two fake police officers carried shotguns and entered the rear portion of the garage where they found two members of Moran's gang and collaborators, uh, Reinhardt Schwimmer and John May, who was fixing one of the trucks. The fake policemen then ordered two men to line up against the wall. That's so brutal too. Yeah. Hey, get up on the wall, everyone. Uh, they then signaled to the pair in civilian clothes who had accompanied them so two of them, two of the killers opened fire with Thompson submachine guns, one with a 20-round box magazine and the other a 50-round drum, which is going to come into play later, I promise. Uh, they were thorough, spraying their victims left and right, even continuing to fire after all seven had hit the floor. Sorry, I scrolled down too quickly. I don't know. Two shotgun blasts afterwards all but obliterated the faces of John May and James Clark, according to the coroner's report. Yeah. Jimmy Clark! Okay, anyways. Sorry. That's for, for you who know. That's for you guys. Anyways, <laughs> uh, to give the appearance that everything was under control, the men in street clothes came out with their hands up, uh, prodding by prodded by the two uniformed policemen. Ooh, that's pretty brilliant, actually. Yeah. Uh, inside mm -hmm. the garage, yeah, like, like they had just uh, 
they're arresting these two men, but they're all in on it. Yeah. So inside the garage, the only survivor in the warehouse were May's dog, Highball, and Frank Gusenberg. And like I said, despite the 14 bullet wounds and him surviving but later passing away, he never identified the killers. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre set off a public outcry, which posed a problem for all mob, mob bosses. So, now we're going to get into Dr. Calvin Goudard and his forensic ballistics. Ding, 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 <laughs> Is this like a segment ding, of the ding, show ding, ding, now? Forensic ballistics. Hey, I'm Calvin Goudard. Uh... <laughs> Is it Goudard? No, you're Goudard? Right, you're right. It's Goudard. There's two O's. Yeah. Goddard. Goudard. No, you're right. Goudard. Goudard. Um, <laughs> Goudard. Um, so, son of an army officer, born October 30th, 1891 in Baltimore. Ooh, birthday uh, buddies. Are you, oh, yeah. We're birthday buddies. <laughs> I'm also born on October 30th of 1891. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Like over I'm over 100 here, so. Look pretty good for my age, you know. Still get carded sometimes. I do still get carded, actually. <laughs> I get carded a lot, actually. Um. <laughs> so he was born in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, after graduating from the Boys Latin School of Maryland in 1907, Goudard, now it's spelled Goddard here. Okay. What? What's happening? Oh, it's raining outside. Oh man. We're not ice skating oh, We're supposed to go ice skating <laughs> later with our biggest fans, Kai, Tiffany, and Diana. <laughs> but it's raining outside right now. Womp womp womp. Anyways, okay. Where was I? Calvin Goudard or Goddard. <sighs> Goddard. Uh who is my birthday buddy. He graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree in 1911 from John Hopkins University and then earned a medical degree and graduated in 1915. Uh, he joined the U.S. Army. This guy's like a total badass, so I'm sorry if this seems very like, okay, so, you know, but he's like a total badass and you'll see why. Like, he does some cool stuff. Uh, anyways, Whatever. Of course he's cool. That's why he's on the podcast. Stop looking at me like that. I'm just, go ahead. Tell us then. <laughs> tell us. Tell us what's going on. Um, so we're 15 minutes in. You've only told us that he graduated from John Hopkins, which he did. Um, <laughs> so he joined the United States Army and became a, a colonel. Colonel. God damn. A colonel. Colonel. And uh, he was a professor of po police science at Northwestern University and the military editor of the Encyclopedia Britannica. He was also the editor of the American Journal of Police Science, America's first scientific police journal. Uh, so Colonel Goudard, Goddard uh, commanded the U.S. Army Crime Labor Laboratory in Japan for a number of years. After World War II, Calvin Goudard brought professionalism to the use of the scientific method and reliability to forensic firearm identification. You see where I'm going with this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, at a time when uh, charlatan 
Puritanism was rampant in the field. Charlatanism. I feel like that should be it. I don't know. I like that name charlatan. Like, I kind of wish that was like my name, uh, but it's not a good name <laughs> for a person. I know. Anyways, charlatan bean. Um, his, yeah, it is kind of cool. His testimony in uh, the 1923 in the Friar case and others paved the way for judicial acceptance of firearm identification. According to Goodard's grandson, he may have been the only army officer who served in all four branches. So the Ordnance Corps, Military Police Corps, Medical Corps, and became a military historian. So he's kind of, he's a cool guy. He's, he's got a lot of accomplishments. So in 1920, he worked in hospital administration. So we're going back a little bit. Um, but in 1920, he worked in hospital administration. He had an interest in firearms since he was a child, and he be began applying his expertise to the expertise in the emerging science of firearm identification. Developed the science behind proving that every firearm makes characteristic marks on a bullet and cartridge shell, and that they are the same every time that gun is fired. And he goes on to say that science has shown that bullet markings are as valuable as fingerprints. So he helped design instruments for the study of firearms, such as the helixometer, an adaptive medical device for looking at the inside, uh, looking inside the body to examine uh, the effects inside the rifling of a gun barrel. Uh, he created the comparison microscope. So it's two microscopes that connect by an optical bridge, allowing for a split view of two samples. Um, this allows uh, for exact comparison of two bullets and their unique marks left by rifling grooves, firing pins, and extractor claws. So have you ever seen The Great Mouse Detective? Yeah. So do you remember that scene in the movie where he's comparing the two bullets and he's trying to find this? No, ah. Yeah, it's been a long time. So in, in the movie. But no, but that's like done everywhere. Yeah. That's, that's how they do but it. You the know? first time I'd ever seen it was done was, it was Great crazy. Mouse Detective. So he's got this cold case that he's never able, has never been able to solve. And he's got a bullet from that case. And every time a gun goes off he'll take the bullet and he compares it it's like it's a little quirk yeah, and i didn't I, fully understand i really don't remember that movie yeah i like, didn't fully understand it at the time but what i remember when i was doing this research i was like oh my goodness that's like the great great mouse detective you know but now you see this stuff like on like yeah CIA, yeah csi and all that so uh he left his job with medical administration and founded the bureau of forensic ballistics which is a term that he coined uh, in New York City, the first independent criminalistic laboratory. The Bureau lacked funding and interests as police departments lacked the sophistication to utilize their services offered, which included fingerprint and blood analysis. So this is quite common for new things that we as human beings tend to be like, why do we need to have, why do we need to pay attention to germ theory? You know, why do we need to care about, you know, blood analysis or, you know, forensics, you know, because we're, we're, 
we only have the knowledge that we have. We don't have knowledge of, you know, the future, you know, and why these things are important. We don't always have the foresight. So police at the time just didn't really see why it was important. So anyways, so this brings us to back to the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So the Chicago City Police Detective Agency started their own investigation. The Cook County uh, State's state attorney suspected that the police might be involved. So they started their own investigation and the Cook County coroner also started their own investigation. So there are several people investigating several facets investigating this uh, massacre. Um, Cause it was like a big deal, like seven people dead in like in a garage. So, yeah. so <clears throat> luckily the coroner, knew that this was a big deal. And so several photographs of the body, uh, the bodies at the crime scene had been taken, which wasn't always necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. Uh, They saved all the bullets. They saved the shells and the shell fragments. They were carefully cataloged and placed in sealed envelopes to to protect the evidence. The coroner, Bert Massey, had heard of Dr. Goudard and his expertise Um, and knew that his expertise would be valuable. So when he was told that there would be no money to hire Goudard, Massey used his own funds to hire him. Goudard was able to determine that 70 of the 45, 70 of 45 caliber, sorry, that 70 of the 45 caliber slugs had come from two Thompson submachine guns. One fired 50 rounds from a drum magazine and the other 20 rounds from a box magazine. A 12 gauge shotgun was also used. Goudard was then able to obtain, obtain and test fire all of the Thompson submachine guns owned by the police in their suburbs, which is frightening to think about police owning machine guns, but okay. I guess when you're up against machine guns, um, So his analysis determined that the bullets did not come from any of the police weapons. So these two police officers were not police officers. Meanwhile, the police had been searching for what they considered to be the best suspect, a man named Fred Burke. Burke was an armed robber and a contract killer. He had been a member of the Egon's rat gang of St. Louis. Egon's rat gang. I just imagine like the guy from uh, Ghostbusters <laughs> having gang members that look like Splinter from this is such a crossover. Yeah, okay, right, I'm yeah. done. Ghostbusters, I'm done. turtles. Yeah. Ghost turtles. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, St. Louis, he'd done contract work with the Tr- Detroit Purple Gang before having a falling out with them. He then moved to Chicago and formed an association with Capone. Burke was a Burke was a suspect because two witnesses claimed that one of the men pretending to be police officers was missing his two front teeth. God, this guy sounds creepy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Burke was missing his front teeth and had been known to impersonate a police officer when committing crimes. Knowing he was a suspect, Burke went into hiding in Michigan under the name Frederick Dave. 
but slipped up in December when he got into a minor traffic accident in St. Joseph, Michigan. Burke tried to flee the scene, but the other driver followed him and alerted a local police officer. When the officer stepped on the running board of Burke's car, Burke, who was drunk at the time, panicked and shot and killed 25-year-old patrolman Charles Shelley. Burke managed to escape the resulting manhunt, but a search of his home turned up a small arsenal, including sawed-off shotguns, tear gas, revolvers, bulletproof vest, a high, high posered, postured, high postured, automatic rifle, and two Thompson submachine guns. The guns were taken to Goddard, and he was able to determine that these were the two guns that were used in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Goddard also identified one of the guns as being one of the ones used to murder gangster Frankie Yell in 1928. Yell had been killed in a blazing shootout in which four men in a Buick. God, that sounds so scary. (laughs) Four men in a Buick fired into his car. Yell had been hit with a shotgun blast and bullets from a Thompson submachine gun. This was the first time a Tommy gun had been used in a gang killing in New York City. Yell and Capone were friends, uh, but Capone found out that Frankie Yell had been hijacking liquor from him. The fact that the same gun used in Yale's murder and the St. Valentine's murder uh, further implicated Capone. Ironically, Yale was suspected of being one of the men who murdered Dean O'Bannon in 1924, the murder that sparked the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So Frank Burke was caught uh, in Green City, Missouri uh, in 1931, turned in by an amateur detective who had seen his photograph in the magazine, True Detective. Uh, He was uh, extradited back to Michigan where he was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Officer Skelly. He was never sent to Chicago to answer questions in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre killing. Burke died in prison in 1940. Despite his his findings, Goudard's evidence never resulted in a conviction for the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And to this day, the crime remains officially unsolved. It is still unclear whether Capone ordered the killings directly. The police uh, were able to get Capone for tax evasion, as we know. Um, resulting in a seven-year imprisonment at Eastern State Penitentiary. And he was later released. So he he didn't just stay at Eastern State. It was 11 years in total uh, that he was convicted. And he only ended up, I think, spending the seven years. But he also went to several other prisons and were moved around. Eastern State is probably the most famous of him staying, though. Yeah. Uh, and he was released in 1939. But by then he was disabled uh, due to complications of syphilis. Look how I spelled syphilis. Syphilis. Uh, syphilis. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and never played a significant role in organized crime again. He died in 1947. And pieces of his room where he died and a brick from the St. Valentine's Day Massacre are currently on display at the Zach Bagans Haunted Museum. Zach Ooh. Bagans, the Haunted Museum. Let me say it correctly. Sorry, Mr. Bagans. The Zach Bagans Haunted Museum in Las Vegas. The two Tommy guns are still in possession of the Barron's County, uh, Michigan Sheriff's Department, and much of the evidence, including bullets, shells, 
the coroner report and the the very wall, the whole wall, except for minus one brick, mm-hmm. uh, from the massacre are on display at the Mob Museum, also here in the wonderful city of Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And that is the story of the St. Valentine's Day massacre. massacre. Alfonso Capone. Hey, Capone. Uh, Jesus. Epic. Yeah, that's, that's crazy, man. Yeah, like... Yeah, he, yeah. Having the, having finally found the same two guns that did both of them. Yeah. yeah and the fact that so much of this stuff still exists, um, they really... So much, much of the time when we're doing... The for like Hollywood's Haunted the podcast. If you don't haven't listened to it, listen to Hollywood's Haunted the podcast. But on that podcast, mm-hmm. uh, as well as maybe a few times on this podcast, and definitely in the future, we come across these cases where so much of the evidence was tampered with. Like on the last episode of Hollywood's Haunted the podcast, when we're talking about the L.A. trunk murders. Like the landlord, the next day was giving tours of the freaking crime scene for like five cents. You know, right, yeah. so the fact that the coroner had the foresight to even take pictures of the crime scene, to this take pictures of the bodies, to save all of this stuff. And the fact that this stuff still exists to this day, we still have, well, not we, like you and I, but, you know, the Tommy guns still exist. The two Tommy guns, the bullet shells and the coroner's report, you know, all still exist. And they're all here on display in Las Vegas, so come give us a visit. Um, <laughs> you know, it's pretty, pretty freaking incredible. You yeah, know, that's so crazy. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, that was really fun for me to do this and learn about Goudard. Um, I got most of the information about Goudard from YouTube from the History Guy, and I do want to do a shout out to him because his stuff is so interesting. He's, he's funny, uh, and he's one of the better YouTube channels that I've come across. I got a f- little bit of it from Simon Cowell. Simon Cowell? I think, no, that seems wrong. American Idol. Not from American Idol. Uh, <laughs> no, Simon something from Biographics. Oh, okay. No, his, his, his writer's name's Cowell. That's why. Oh, okay. Uh, all right, edit that out. <laughs> so I got most of my information from the history guy. Uh, most of the stuff about Goudard was from the history guy on YouTube, from uh, Biographics and the Casual Criminalist. Uh, I got a lot of my information from Wikipedia. Wikipedia is a wealth, wealth of knowledge. Please donate to Wikipedia. Even if you just give their uh, often requested $2.75. Please donate to them. And, uh, yeah, and I got some of my information, you know, from uh, the wonderful job that I have and, you know, just living here in Vegas. So so definitely give us a visit, check out those YouTubes, and I hope you enjoyed this story. Yeah, that is pretty crazy. Yeah, like, <laughs> like the whole Al Capone thing is still crazy like the whole forensic so i just loved how you started a sentence with yeah that's pretty crazy (laughs) yep and that was my story (laughs) you guys can catch us on (laughs) iHeartRadio. i'm just gonna start all my sentences now with yeah so that's how it is that's crazy yeah that's crazy (laughs) and over here on my left is a gun that's crazy (laughs) 
No, just like learning about like the the urgency of forensic science was really just because they were trying to figure out whether or not it was you know I mean it was a bigger story you know and like the whole well they and, like, this coroner was actually just doing his job really really well he did the job well because it was pretty shocking but they I wouldn't say they were doing anything it was all Goudard. It, it, he was the only one who really appreciated forensic science and a few people who believed in him. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, but yeah, anyways, what do you got? Um, I'm going to talk to you about Jimmy Hoffa, which of course you knew because you, because you, I assigned the story, story to you. To me. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, Jimmy Hoffa, also known as James, because that's what all Jimmy's are. That's not, that's not true. That's not true. No, it's not. Oh yeah, it's it's Jiminy. Oh, Jiminy Cricket Uh, is Jiminy. Okay, I was gonna say, is it James Cricket? It's Jamesiny. Jamesiny Cricket. (laughs) Uh, that's not true. Uh, it isn't. No, you can be called Jimmy or Jim, and your name and your name's just Jim. Oh, Jim. Maybe you're right. Yeah, if your name's just Jim, like normally, that was the entire basis of my story. So. I think there's more to Jimmy Hoffa besides the fact that he's named James. Uh, um, but yes, all right. His name was James Riddle Hoffa, which I thought was kind of a cool middle name. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, Voldemort, right? Um, <laughs> and interestingly, I love how you agreed, but you didn't. You have no clue what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, yeah. No, Anyways, uh, no, you're yes, fine. Harry Potter. It's his no, I know you know who yeah. Voldemort is, but you don't know what I'm. Never mind. Anyways, it's okay. Continue. I'll, I'll cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so James Riddle Hoffa, apparently that's Voldemort's mm-hmm. middle name or something. Um, but he was born on Valentine's Day in 1913. Oh, interestingly enough, right? Cool. Yeah. Not that he's connected in any way to and the St. Valentine's no. Day Massacre, but yeah, I thought it was interesting. The baby Jimmy Hoffa did uh, it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if he was born in 1913, Jeans he would have been uh, 15 years old uh, at the time of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, right? I don't know, math. What? what? No. 1913, if it was tw- 1920, yeah, 29. Maybe, I guess you're right. 16 yeah. years yeah, old? No, I guess you're right, yeah. No. I don't know. Okay. I, I don't know. Email me at myweirdlittlepodcast at gmail.com with the correct number. Just put down 16. That's it. That's all you do in the email. <laughs> Just curious how far. Okay, four minutes in, and I've only gotten to his name. <laughs> this is I'm, banter. People oh, like no. to hear the banter. That's true. That's true. Um, all right. So he was born <laughs> Valentine's Day, 1913. Uh, and he disappeared on July 30th, 1975, was declared dead on July 30th, 1982. Uh, so, yeah, about seven years later, he was declared dead. Mm. Uh, but he was an American labor union leader who served as the president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, or IBT. And I'll definitely be saying IBT later on. I did that. Mm. Uh, but from 1957 to 1971. Um, he became a labor, labor organizer during the 1930s as president of the powerful Teamsters Union. He played a key role in forging the first national freight hauling agreement for truck drivers. 
Hoffa was sent to prison in 1967 for jury tampering, fraud, and conspiracy, though his sentence was commuted by President Richard Nixon, uh, which is so funny. Like, so many horrible people get the fucking pardon from presidents, and I always thought... Yeah. Pardons are... I think that's one of the weirdest things Weird. Some people, I would say, deserve it, and some people... Maybe no, that's true. Throughout history, people not. have been pardoned that you know should have gotten yeah. out or whatever, you yeah, know, or whatever. But yeah, sometimes they let people go that are obviously like, oh, this guy did the president a favor and lied for yeah. him or whatever, you know. So and it's Nixon too, so it's yeah. like, yeah, of course, like, of course he let Hoffa off the hook. Um, for those of you who don't know what Teamsters are, they're actually very important here. Uh, not here, like I'm in LA still. Or, sorry, are you going to explain what Teamsters are? No, no. I, oh, okay. I guess not, yeah. Uh, um, so, Teamsters are the people who drive for the movie studios. So, they're the ones that are going to take the actors, background, crew from one location to another, from dressing rooms to the set. They're the, they're the drivers. They're also the ones who drive the tram tours for Universal Studios it is a huge union that is separate from SAG, AFTRA. Well, they're I was, their I was own. About to say it's also separate from acting in general. Acting like in general, yeah. Like just the film portion of Teamsters is a very small portion because yeah. they do trucking, shipping, you know, basically anything that needs to be moved. Yeah. You know, Teamsters is involved. Yeah. You know, or at least at one point in history, you know, it wasn't. You know, always, always Teamsters, you know, yeah. they, they, were, they weren't always under one labor union, but that's, I guess, where Jimmy Hoffa comes in. Yeah. And they still <laughs> exist to this day. Our good friend, Kim, shout out to Kim Smith, uh, is a Teamster and uh, she has, yeah, she makes a wonderful living. Uh, well, I, I assume wonderful because she yeah. seems happy with it. Um, <laughs> wonderful living as a Teamster. And uh, she has got some cool stories from driving. She she specifically drives for movie sets right. um, in L.A., which is a lot. There's a lot of sets and there's a lot of people who need to be driven from place to place for these sets. You know, I've been driven many times. Uh, actually, I got a post today uh, or a reminder on Facebook today. Oh, God, I got to pull it up. It's too funny. Um Sorry to tangent again, but God, where is it? Here it is. Um, so I used to do background years and years ago, uh, two years ago to be, uh, and it said this post from two years ago says, don't get into the wrong shuttle and get taken to the wrong set. That being said, don't jump into don't jump into random vans is probably a good rule of thumb to follow. This is when oh, I you that. remember I, I dropped you off by that Target. You dropped me off by Target, and I got into a van that looked like a van for a move uh, for a TV show, but I had forgotten the name of the TV show, and they had the poster in the window that this is the van for the TV show, but I was the wrong van, and luckily when I got into the van. They dropped off at set, and I was like, oh, uh, is this the set for blah, blah, blah? I had remembered it, and he was like, no, we're not. We're not there. And he's like, I think your film set is like 
down the block a little bit. And like, luckily he drove me to the right place and not all the way back to where he picked me up at, or, you know, dropped me off there to fend for myself, you know? So teamsters are very nice people, but also don't get into random vans. Anyways, continue. Sorry. That's the moral of the story. Moral of the story, yes. <laughs> Do not just get into a van because you think it's going to drive you to set. Make sure it is the van that's going to drive you to set. The next the- episode is just the one with the van. So just. That. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. All right. Um. So. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Pardoned by Nixon, uh, while seeking to regain the Union presidency, Hoffa abruptly disappeared in July 1975, igniting numerous books, screen projects, and conspiracy theories on the subject. So, getting into his early life, uh, he was born on uh, Valentine's Day, like I said, 1913, in Brazil, Indiana. Uh, Jimmy Hoffa became one of the most famous labor leaders in American history. Growing up, he saw firsthand the challenges and hardships American workers faced. His father was a coal miner who died when he was still young. His mother went to work to support Hoffa and his three siblings, eventually moving the family to Detroit. Hoffa had a limited education, sorry, a limited education while there being conflicting uh, information over whether he ever reached high school. It is known that he dropped out of school to work and help his family. Hoffa eventually went to work on a loading dock for a grocery store chain in Detroit. There, he orchestrated his first labor strike. Um, so, yeah, what? He, yeah, he was fourteen at this time, uh, doing his first labor strike, mm. which is pretty, pretty, pretty crazy. Uh, um, helping his coworkers land a better contract, he used a newly arrived sh- shipment of strawberries as a bargaining chip. The workers wouldn't unload until they had a new deal, which is really smart because uh, strawberries go bad very quickly. You know, mm-hmm. if they're not put away, you know, mm-hmm. or sold or whatever, you know, and that's that's money that they're losing. Mm-hmm. Uh, April thirteenth, nineteen thirty, seventeen-year-old uh, Jimmy Hoffa led his coworkers at a Kroger warehouse in Clinton, Indiana, in a successful job action. By refusing to unload a shipment of perishables, perishable strawberries, they forced the company to give in to their demands. Among other things, the Strawberry Boys, that's what they're called, mm. uh, had to report to work. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> nothing, nothing's tougher than the Strawberry Boys. Oh, um, I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory. Right, yeah, exactly. Uh, had to report to work at 4.30 a.m., stay on the job for 12 hours and were paid 32 cents an hour only if growers arrived with berries to unload. Plus they were required to spend three fourths of any earnings buying goods from Kroger. Three quarters of their money had to go to the company store. Yeah. You know, that's remember when I was talking about the, what was that? The utopias or whatever. What are they called? Yeah. Like when there's a, Basically, yeah, a, a new play- form of society, the, new, yeah, new form of uh, uh, economics. And yeah, stuff like where they're like living on company land. Like, granted, like the company has a hospital that only you guys can go to, and like, uh, but you can only shop at the company store, and it becomes very. Uh, difficult when this company store doesn't have the supplies that you need you know and this company is supposed to be taking care of you but uh Mm -hmm. they don't they don't you know 
and you're contractually obligated and you're, it's basically like a form of slavery that was very common in the 1930s. Um, so it's some sort of utopia, something oh, I'll continue. I'll find, I'll find the word and I'll shout it out in the most unopportune moment in the middle of your story here. So expect nothing less uh in the 1930s hoffa joined the international brotherhood of teamsters like i said ibt he eventually became the president of the union's detroit chapter ambitious and aggressive hoffa worked hard to expand the union's membership and negotiate better contracts for his constituents by any means necessary his extensive efforts paid off in 1952 when he became the vice president of the entire union Five years later, Hoffa won the presidency of the Teamsters, replacing Dave Beck. Beck was tried and convicted on charges related to his union activities. Hoffa himself was the subject of numerous investigations, but managed to avoid prosecution for many years. In 1964, he scored one of his decisive victories as union president by bringing together almost all of the truckers in North America under one contract, which is pretty insane. Wow. Um... His uh, When it comes to his convictions, uh, both the FBI and U.S. Attorney General uh, Robert Kennedy kept a close eye on Hoffa, believing that he advanced himself and his union with uh, assistance from the organized crime. Uh, the Justice Department indicated Hoffa several times, but failed to win its cases against the popular labor leader. In March 1964, however, the prosecution scored a victory against Hoffa, he was found guilty of bribery and jury tampering in connection with his 1962 federal trial for conspiracy, which is so funny. There's, that's so fu such a funny sentence. Uh, that July, Hoffa suffered another blow. He was convicted of misusing funds from the union's pension plan. Hoffa spent three years appealing his convictions, but these efforts proved fruitless. He began serving a 13-year prison sentence in 1967 before his sentence was commuted by President Richard Nixon in 1971. As a condition, Nixon banned Hoffa from holding a leadership position in the union until 1980. However, Hoffa wasted no time trying to fight that ban in court and working behind the scenes to regain control over the Teamsters. So that he was just like, yeah, you, you, I'll let you go, but you can't be, you know, can't be playing be playing with the union and he's yeah. like and eh, no, i'm still gonna do it like there's no like real like it's just like better not mm. <laughs> no like no actual plan um so hoffa's plans to regain the leadership of the union were met with opposition from several members of the mafia one of them was anthony provenzano, provenzano who had been a teamsters nice. local leader in new jersey and a national vice president of the union during hoffa's second term as its president Provenzano had once been a friend of Hoffa's, but became an enemy after reported feud when both were in federal prison at Lewisburg, Pennsylvania in the 60s. In 1973 and 74, Hoffa asked him for his support to regain his former position, but Provenzano refused and threatened Hoffa by reportedly saying that he would pull out his guts and kidnap his children. Provenzano, <laughs> yeah. Provenzano was a capro regime. Capo regime, uh, capo regime, I don't know, which uh, a capo, which is uh, actually translates to captain in Italian. Uh, mm. But that's, you know, pretty high up in the in the mob family of the uh, Genovese uh, crime family. At least two of Provenzano's, Provenzano's union opponents had been murdered. 
and others who had spoken out against him had been assaulted. Mm. Other mafia figures who became involved were Anthony Giacalone, an alleged kingpin in the Detroit mafia, mafia, and his brother Vito. The FBI believes that they were positioning themselves as mediators between Hoffa and Provenzano. Provenzano. The brothers had made three visits to Hoffa's home at Lake Orion and one to the Guardian Building Law Offices. Their avowed purpose in meeting Hoffa was to set up a peace meeting between Provenzano and Hoffa. Hoffa's son, James, said, Dad was pushing so hard to get back in office, I was increasingly afraid that the mob would go, would do something about it. James was convinced that the peace meeting was a pretext to Gia Colones setting up setting dad up for a hit since Hoffa had been increasingly uneasy since each time the Giacalone brothers arrived. All right, so July 30th, 1975, uh, that's when Hoffa disappeared. And this was after he had gone out to the meeting with Provenzano and Giacalone. The meeting was due to take place at 2 p.m. at the Machu's Red Fox restaurant in, town, in Bloomfield Township, which was a Detroit suburb. The place was known to Hoffa as it had been the site of the wedding reception of his son, James. Hoffa wrote Gia Coloni's initials in, at, and the time uh, and location of the meeting in his office calendar. Uh, TG, 2 p.m., Red Fox. Hoffa left his home at 1.15. Before, leaving the rest, before heading to the restaurant, he stopped at the office of his close friend, Louis Linto, a former president of the Teamsters Local 614, who now ran a limousine service. Linto and Hoffa had been enemies early in their careers, but eventually became friends. When Hoffa left prison, Linto had also become Hoffa's unofficial appointment secretary and arranged a dinner meeting between Hoffa and the Giacalone brothers on July 26, in which they had informed him of the July 30th meeting. Linto was out to lunch when Hoffa stepped out, and so Hoffa talked to some of their staff uh, presence, some of the staff present and left a message for Linto before he left for the Red Fox. Between 2.15 and 2.30, an annoyed Hoffa called his wife from a payphone on a post in front of a Diamond Hardware directly behind the Machu's Red Fox and complained that Gia Coloni had not shown up and that he had been stood up. So apparently they, the meeting never even took place at this, mm -hmm. at this point in time. Mm -hmm. um, because that's an actual record that, you know, that phone call was made. Mm -hmm. um, his wife told him that she had not heard from anyone. He told her he would be home at 4 p.m. to grill steaks for dinner. Uh, several witnesses saw Hoffa standing by his car and pacing the restaurant's parking lot. Two men saw Hoffa, uh, recognized him, and stopped to chat with him briefly, briefly to shake his hand. Hoffa also made a call to Linto, in which he again complained that the men were late. Linto gave the time as 3.30 p.m., but the FBI suspected that it was earlier based on the timing of the other phone calls from Linto's office around that time. The FBI estimates that Hoffa left the location without a struggle around 2.45 to 2.50 p.m. One witness reported seeing Hoffa in the back of a, of a, in the back of a maroon Lincoln or Mercury car with three other people. So those one person that said that he might have been, I mean, that seems like someone was taking him because if he's in the back seat. And two other people are in the front. Yeah, you know. Yeah. But that was just one witness. That's the only that's at this that point. said that they had seen him. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so at 7 a.m. the next day, Hoffa's wife called her son and daughter to say that their father had not come home. Mm. On her way home. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, that's not, <laughs> good. not a good thing. Mm. 
On her way home, Hoffa's daughter claimed to have had a vision of her father, who she was already sure was dead. He was hmm. slumped over and wore a dark-colored, short-sleeved polo shirt. It has mystified her ever since that although she could not have possibly known that prior to her arrival at Lake Orion, the clothing in her vision was exactly what Hoffa was wearing when he disappeared. That's, I wouldn't say that's uncommon for people to have that feeling of knowing a loved one is dead. Oh, no, I've definitely heard that story Or having before, it a vision. Yeah. But that's pretty know? crazy, right? Like, no, that is yeah, crazy. Like that is crazy. Having a vision before and then finding out it was the same shirt. Yeah. You know, granted, you're this person's daughter, so you probably know your dad's wardrobe. So many you know what I mean? that when, that could come in. Yeah. As a uh, when people pass away, though, I feel like it isn't uncommon for them to visit someone right very soon after. So I mean, at that point, he could have already been dead, right? Right. Yeah. And he could have been letting her know. You know. Yeah, that's true. But that's very interesting. Um, where was I? Da, 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 da. At 7.20 a.m., Linto went to Machu's Red Fox and found Hoffa's unlocked car in the parking lot, but there was no sign of Hoffa nor any indication of what had happened to him. He called the police, who arrived later at the scene. The Michigan State Police were brought in, and the FBI was alerted. At 6 p.m., Hoffa's son, James, filed a missing persons report. The Hoffa family offered $200,000 reward for any information about the disappearance. The primary piece of physical evidence obtained in the investigation was a maroon 1975 uh, Mercury Marquis Broham, <laughs> which belonged to Anthony Giacalone's son, Joseph. The car had been borrowed <clears throat> earlier that day by Charles Chucky O'Brien to deliver fish. <laughs> to deliver the fish. Uh, <laughs> O'Brien was Hoffa's foster son, although relations between them had soured in the years preceding Hoffa's disappearance. Investigators and Hoffa's family suspected that O'Brien had a role in Hoffa's disappearance. On August 21st, police dogs identified Hoffa sent in the car. Gia Coloni and Provenzano, who denied having scheduled a meeting with Hoffa, were found not to have been near the restaurant, restaurant that afternoon. Provenzano told investigators that he was playing cards with Stephen and Dredda Thomas, and Dredda's brother, in uh, Union City, New Year, New Jersey, the day that Hoffa disappeared. <coughs> Pardon me. The day that Hoffa disappeared. Despite extensive surveillance and bugging, investigators found that the mafia members, uh, who they thought were involved, were generally generally unwilling to talk about Hoffa's disappearance, even in private. Well, no, no doubt they didn't want to talk. They're, they're I just, that was just, sorry, I shouldn't have even put that in there. Despite extensive surveillance and bugging, investigators found that the mafia member, oh yeah, sorry. It's a, on December 4th, 1975, a federal investigator in Detroit said in court presided by James Paul Churchill that a witness had identified three New Jersey men as having participated in the abduction and murder of James R. Hoffa. The three men were close associates of Provenzano, Thomas Andretta, Salvatore Brugiulio, Breguglio and his brother Gabriel Breguglio. Gabriel Breguglio. Yeah, say that five times fast. <laughs> Later in 1975, Michigan, Michigan Attorney General Frank J. Kelly went to Waterford Township to supervise an unsuccessful digging expedition for Hoffa. 
After years of investigation involving numerous law enforcement agencies, including the FBI, officials have not reached a definitive conclusion as to Hoffa's fate and who was involved. Hoffa's wife, Josephine, died on September 12, 1980, and is interred at Whitechapel Memorial Cemetery in Troy, Michigan. On December 9, 1982, Hoffa was declared legally dead as of July uh, 30, 1982, by Oakland County, Michigan, probate judge Norman R. Barnard. On 19, in 1989, Kenneth Walton, the agent in charge of the FBI's direct off, Detroit office, uh, told the Detroit News that he knew what hit, had happened to Hoffa. I'm comfortable I know who did it, but it's never going to be prosecuted because we would have to divulge informants, confidential sources. In 2001, the FBI matched DNA from Hoffa's hair taken from a brush with a strand of hair found in Joseph Giacoloni's car. But it is possible that Hoffa had traveled in the car on a different day. Right. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> sure. Um, that's where I keep all my combs. In the seats of other people's cars. You brush the hair of all my friends. <laughs> so, uh, before you go, why don't you brush your hair a bit? Uh, on June 16, 2006, the Detroit Free Press published the entire Hoffex Memo, which is a 56-page report prepared by the FBI for a January 1976 briefing on the case at FBI headquarters in Washington. Although not claiming conclusively to establish the specifics of his disappearance, the memo records a belief that Hoffa was murdered at the behest of organized crime figures who regarded his efforts to regain power in the Teamsters as a threat to the control uh, to their control of the union's pension fund. As of 2021, digs are still periodically conducted in the Detroit area in search of Hoffa's body, but a common theory among experts is is that the body was cremated. So, oh, yeah. Even if he is, no one's going to find him. He's that's, he's literally dust. I never even thought of that because I was like, where they're going to find you, him you one know, day? Like, that's what I. That's what I never really understood about the case. Like, like bodies de- decompose that's too. True. You know, like, even if it was buried, like it's still. That's you know, true. like I mean, I guess you're going to find bones, but bones it's also most like, of the time, but like but... yeah, if like you're smart, like these mobsters drop people in acid baths and stuff. Like, why wouldn't they do that? Like, yeah, these guys are pros. Um. There is wide agreement among crime historians and investigators that Hoffa was murdered uh, on the orders of the enemies of the mafia. However, key details remain either unknown or unprovable, and this has ensured that no individuals have ever been charged in relation to the case. Uh, in discussing potential motives, the Hoffa memo noted that Provenzano was not senior enough to order a mafia hit, though it did not rule out the possibility that his or some or someone else's personal vendetta against Hoffa was a motive. Which I think is so funny that like Provenzano was was not senior enough to order a mafia hit. That's like being like, that's like saying like, oh, in this, that's like rules of war, you know. That's like an oxymoron, you know. Oh, it's yeah. a, it's the mafia. They're not like a standardized organization of the government or something, yeah. you know, like which which has regulations. Like you're the mafia. It's like, oh no, he wasn't senior enough to order a hit. So there's no way he could have done that. Trust me, we we kill people for a living. Trust me. <laughs> it's like that's so it's funny yeah. um scott bernstein a crime historian and journalist argued in 2019 that provenzano's role in the entire case was limited to acting as a lure dan moldia mentioned the possibility that hoffa had retaliated against his mafia opponents by cooperating with investigations against them the hoffex memo included this as a possible motivation Vincent Persante, the state's government's 
former chief investigator into the Hoffa case, doubted that Hoffa could have seriously threatened the mafia in this way, as any incriminating information he knew either would have incriminated himself or uh, concerned crimes that were outside of the statute of of limitations. Uh, which makes sense because, like, yeah, the mafia doing this would have kind of like just opened more doors into investigating into the mafia and you know how they like because that's it seems like Hoffa was kind of like he wouldn't do that because yeah that would just implicate both parties and that wouldn't win for anybody. Mm-hmm. But you know who, who's to say what was really happening behind doors? Um, Persante suggested that the killing was accidental and that the men who were sent to meet Hoffa were only meant to be insultingly low-level messengers. He argued that Hoffa had no realistic prospects for a comeback, that the disappearance did not share the usual characteristics of a mafia hit, and that it risked encouraging action against organized crime. This theory did not gain wide acceptance among criminologists. Mm -hmm. Uh, In his 1991 book, Hoffa, author... Arthur A. Sloan said that most common, the most common theory of FBI investigators was that Russell Buffalino was the mob boss who ordered the murder and, and Salvatore Sally Bugs Berguglio, his brother Gabriel Berguglio, Thomas Andrea, and Charles Chucky O'Brien were the men who lured Hoffa away from the restaurant. The theory is that O'Brien was used as an unwitting dupe to lure Hoffa away because Hoffa was suspicious of Provenzano and would not have entered the car unless there was a familiar figure present. Keith Corbett, a former U.S. prosecuting attorney, has suggested uh, that O'Brien would have been considered too unreliable to be entrusted with the role in such a high-profile murder. He instead suggested that Vito Billy Giacalone was was the familiar figure. The location of the murder is also unknown, but any violence in the restaurant parking lot would have easily attracted witnesses. Therefore, the Hoffex memo suspects that Hoffa was lured away to a separate murder location, James Buccoletto, a professor of criminology and criminal justice at uh, Northern Arizona University, suggested in 2017 that it was likely that Hoffa was murdered one mile away from the restaurant at the house of Carlo Licata, the son of mobster Nick Licata. Sloan listed a local waste incinerator and landfill in Jersey City as the possible locations where the body was taken. The latter is all supported by Dan Moldia. Buccoletto listed two waste incinerators and a crematorium all in the Detroit area. He doubted the body. Well, there you go. He's right? gone. Yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> he doubted the body had been transported a long distance. It's just not practical. The Hoffex memo similarly said if the Detroit LCN was used to assist in the disappearance, it is unknown why the body would be transported back to New Jersey when Detroit organized crime people have proven in the past that they are capable of taking care of such things. Um, so, other accounts uh, in the book, I heard you paint houses. Uh, Frank the Irishman Sheeran and the closing on the case of Jimmy Hoffa. I love that. I hear you paint houses. That's like One second here. Our like cat is trying to get into the room because she can't bear to be. All right. Um, in the book, I heard you paint houses. Frank <laughs> the Irishman Sheeran and the closing on the case of Jimmy Hoffa. The longest title in the world. Uh, 2004 author Charles Brandt writes that Frank Sheeran, an alleged professional killer for the mob and longtime friend of uh, Hoffa, confessed to assassinating him. According to the book, Sheeran claims O'Brien drove him, Hoffa, and fellow mobster Sal Berguglio to a house in Detroit. To a house in Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, our cat is busting in in the room right now. To, 
to a house in Detroit. Yes. Uh huh. Sorry. <laughs> now you're why to a house in Detroit where he shot Hoffa twice in the back of the head. Further, in 2003, Sheeran admitted to reporters that he murdered Hoffa, although bloodstains found in the Detroit house in which Sheeran claimed the murder had happened were determined not to match Hoffa's DNA. The truthfulness of the book, including Sheeran's confessions to killing Hoffa, have been disputed by The Lies of the Irishman, an article in Slate by Bill Tonelli and Jimmy Hoffa and the Irishman, a true crime story by Harvard Law professor Jake Goldsmith, which appeared in the New York Review of Books. Bucoletto doubts that the Mafia would have entrusted an Irish-American with this role and also believes that Hoffa would have refused to, the, to travel that far from the restaurant. Hoffa's body was rumored to be buried in Giant Stadium in an episode of the Discovery on the Discovery in an episode of the Discovery Channel show Mythbusters, The Hunt for Hoffa. The locations in the stadium in which Hoffa was rumored to be buried were scanned with a ground-penetrating radar. That was intended mm -hmm. to reveal if any disturbances indicating a human body had been buried there, but no trace of any human remains was found. Yeah. In addition, no human remains were found when Giant Stadium was demolished in 2010. So they actually had, like, it was demolished, so they had, like, a chance to actually look. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2012, Roseville, Michigan police took samples from the ground under a suburban Detroit driveway after a person reporting having witnessed the burial of a body there around the time of Hoffa's disappearance. Tests by Michigan State University anthropologists found no evidence of human remains. In January 2013, the reputed gangster Tony Zarelli implied that Hoffa was originally buried in a shallow grave with a plan to move his remains later to a second location. Zarelli said that plans were abandoned and that Hoffa's remains lay in a field in northern Oakland County, Michigan, not far from the restaurant in which he had been last seen. Zarelli denied any responsibility for our, or association with Hoffa's disappearance. On June 17, 2013, investigating the Zarelli information, the FBI was led to a property in Oakland Township in northern Oakland County, which was owned by Detroit mob boss Jack Toko. After three days, the FBI called off the dig. No human remains are found and the case remains open. Thomas Andretta, who died in 2019, and his brother Stephen, were, who reportedly died of cancer in 2000, were named by the FBI as suspects. Both were New Jersey Teamsters and reputed Genovese crime family mob associates. The FBI called Thomas Andretta a trusted associate of Anthony Provenzano, reported to be involved in the disappearance of Hoffa. In an April 2019 interview with DJ Vlad, the former Colombo, <laughs> right? <laughs> The former Colombo crime family capo, Michael Francesi, stated that he was certain that Hoffa's disappearance had been mob-related, that he was aware of the location of Hoffa's body and of the identity of his shooter, and had tapes that revealed dis details of his disappearance. Francesi says, I can tell you that it's wet. That's for sure. And upon good information, again, I think I know who the real shooter was. Still alive today, in prison. In a deathbed statement, a landfill worker claimed to bury the Teamsters leader's body in a steel drum 15 feet below the surface in a landfill beneath the Pulaski Skyway in Jersey City, New Jersey. In October 2021, the FBI obtained a warrant and completed a site survey in the landfill. Results of the survey have not yet been released. Yeah, it's just happened recently mm -hmm. know, that, that uh, I saw this article. It's pretty crazy. Um... So, <clears throat> where is that? yeah, Hoffa's legacy remains controversial. Arthur Sloan wrote, To many, Hoffa was a kind of latter-day Al Capone. 
<laughs> Others, he was hugely successful in approving work conditions, working conditions for his uh, truck driving constituents. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been uh, been assured that the body hasn't been dug up yet. Journalist Dan Moldea told the Associated Press, referring to the recent uh, work in October. Moldea, who has written extensively about the Hoffa saga, said he was contacted by the FBI in September 2020, months after speaking to Frank Coppola, the son of a key figure, and publishing a detailed account. Coppola, who was a teenager in the 70s, said he worked at the old PJP landfill with his father, Paul Coppola. Uh, Coppola said his father was dying in 2008 when he decided to reveal secrets. He explained how Hoffa's body was delivered to the landfill in 75 placed in a steel drum, and buried with other barrels, bricks, and dirt, according to Moldea. Paul Capilla, worried that the police might be watching, dug a hole on New Jersey State property about 100 years from the landfill and dumped the unmarked barrel there. Or there. 100 yards. Yeah. Uh, I said years. I said years? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, About 100 (laughs) yards from the landfill and dumped the unmarked barrel there, Moldea said Friday. Then he put 15 to 30 steel drums on top of it, which were filled with toxic adhesives and bulldozed the area flat. Jeez. Frank Capilla spoke to Fox Nation and Moldea before he died in 2020 and signed a document attesting to his father's story. I've pushed all my chips in on this thing. I believe that we've got it, Moldea told the Associated Press. Certainly FBI has taken this seriously. This is wonderful. On the verge of a total and complete vindication of the, their 46-year investigation. I'm hoping they succeed. The search over the years has included various digs in rural Michigan and even the removal of floorboards at a Detroit house. Hoffa was president of the 2.1 million team, 2.1 million member Teamsters Union from 57 to 71, uh, even keeping the title while in prison for trying to bribe jurors during a previous trial. Um, I already saw that. Uh, Okay, yeah. Um, so, and then just like the couple of references, you know, that that are recent to this. I always like to finish with this. But the, the movie The Irishman uh, is actually pretty much all about this. Whether or not that's, you know, any of it's based on in truth is... I don't yeah. know, so thinking back on it, you know, the, there's definitely some truth in it. Because he was definitely tied into the mob, you know. But, you know, you know Scorsese. Uh, but yeah, in 2017, filming began on a Martin Scorsese score, <laughs> a Martin Scorsese directed feature about Hoffa's disappearance, titled "The Irishman." The project was based on the book 2003 book "I Heard You Paint Houses," in which mob hitman Frank the Irishman Sheeran claimed responsibility for killing Hoffa, uh, generating buzz thanks to a big name cast that included Robert De Niro as Sheeran and Al Pacino as Hoffa. The film eventually debuted at the September 2019 New York Film Festival. Hoffa married Josephine Pozowak in 1936. The couple had two children together, both daughter Barbara Krantzer and son James P. Hoffa have publicly campaigned for further investigation into the father's disappearance. James P. Hoffa has also, fathered, has also followed in his father's footsteps, serving as the president of the Teamsters Union since 1998. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty, pretty crazy one. I got most of my information from biography.com, wikipedia.com, and a really cool order article on abcnews.com but yeah they it was it was that article on abc news yeah that was really recent yeah they they have done an investigation because they think it's a credible uh tip uh, but whether or not a body has been taken out or if they found anything is not going to be revealed for however the fbi decides that 
if there is a body yeah yeah exactly even if there is one because yeah like i said like they've dug up everything you know and plus it's like 46 years that's a long time man yeah that's the disappearance of jimmy hoffa jimmy hoffa also known as james (laughs) also known as james hoffa james and nina um awesome so I hope you all enjoyed that episode. Please follow us and on Instagram. Yeah, don't at, like follow us in person. Don't good. follow us in person. No, <laughs> please don't. Um, Just let yourself be known. Yeah. <laughs> uh, follow us on Instagram at my weird little podcast. Uh, I just started a TikTok as well on at my weird little podcast on TikTok, so you can see me struggle with TikTok and learning that platform. But I'm doing my best. Um, and, uh, we are also on Facebook. You can listen to us wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm assuming you figured that part out by now. Um, but please share us. Um, please tell your friends about this podcast. If you're enjoying it, uh, we just need a few more fans and then we'll be at the top. Uh, (laughs) so, uh, if you have any suggestions, on stories, please email us at myweirdlittlepodcast at gmail.com. And I hope you all stay spooky. Ooh. Ooh.